0: The longer I'm involved in this practice, both sitting and teaching all the different aspects, uh, the more appreciative I am of the sense of lineage, that we're not just hanging out here doing something that somebody made up 50 years ago and hoping that it works, that there's this long 2,500-year documented history of people going through more or less what we're going through here believe it or not um, and of course we think of the Buddha perhaps as the beginning of the lineage but tonight I want to share some of the stories and poems of some of the first women who became nuns during the time of the Buddha and we hear we hear about the Buddha a lot and we hear about his chief male disciples and there's some some books in the suttas that are poems of some of the main monks and some of the main nuns from the time of the Buddha. And reading these poems and then reading the stories of the women to whom they are attributed is really incredibly inspiring to me because it's not at all a sense of some dry women who live somewhere that have nothing in common with me. And even though it's true that all the poems are written by women or men who became fully enlightened, it seems that that was the criterion, you know, to get your poem published (laughs) through posterity. You know, so there's really no poems of miserable, dejected failures. Some of the poems are written by women, I'm just gonna talk about the women now, who felt like miserable, dejected failures for long periods of time during their practice. And so I just wanna talk about, tell some of the stories and share some of their poems because to me, uh, I I get really into it because they seem just as real to me now, reading their poems as we are. And they come from all different backgrounds within the tradition of the Indian subcontinent 2,500 years ago. You know, all economic and all life backgrounds, and their stories were incredibly difficult, incredibly easy, just like like us. So that's what I want to talk about. And to begin, of course, one has to begin with the woman who is credited for bringing the nun or bhikkhuni, sangha into existence in the first place and her name was Mahapajapati Gotami. That's a long name, we'll just call her Pajapati. She was the aunt of the Buddha, the younger sister of his mother. She's credited with uh, bringing the nuns, the bhikkhuni sangha into existence because for a long time, well some years, after the Buddha left home, when he came back, uh, met his family and began the um, teachings, there was a whole monk sangha around him. But while he had many, many women lay followers, there wasn't uh, an ordained women's sangha for some time. So she started it. So beginning with her story, as they said, she was the younger sister of the Buddha's mother, And both sisters were married to the same man, the Buddha's father, King Suddhodana. And this is all I'll say about it, but you'll hear through all these stories a really different culture from this one. All the kings and wealthy men had numerous wives and consorts and um, women in their harem, and um, there's a whole different ideal of wifely devotion, sort of forced devotion, you could say, in a marriage, it's just a very different context. So the Buddha's mother, Maya, died when he was a week old. And Pajapati, his aunt, brought him up. And she also had uh, two children of her own. And when the Buddha, before he was the Buddha, when he left his king and his aunt, his mother, and went off, and his wife and his newborn son, and went off to do his practice and become the Buddha, left the whole family behind. When he came back, his welcome was maybe a little tentative at first, but the family did welcome and listen to him, and his father, King Suddhodana, and Pajapati, his aunt, or who'd raised him, his mother, and also um, her son, who was close to the Buddha's age, all became great followers of the Buddha. But, staying lay followers. So, over the years, not really so very long, um, both the Buddha's son and Pajapati's son left the home to become monks, followers of the Buddha. And soon after that, the king, King Suddhodana, died. Now, this left Pajapati, even though she was from a wealthy family and there's a whole court, Really, in that time, women's net in society was usually very much determined by the men in their lives, either their husband or their father or their son. And so in Pajapati's case, her husband had died, her father was dead, and her sons had split to become monks. And she was a very powerful woman, and many other women looked to her for guidance. And so it's said at this time many other women... Many men were um, joining the bhikkhu sangha, so many other women were left alone. And they came to Pajapati for guidance and just to see what to do. And Pajapati, remember, was very devoted to the teachings, not only the Buddha. So at this time, with all these women on their own, there came another event, which was like a little war between the kingdom, the little kingdom of the Buddha's family, and the neighboring kingdom. The Sakyans and the Kalyans had a fight over water rights, which seems like the way we're going again. So in this fight, a lot of more men were killed. So more women were left. And they all went to the Buddha and asked him to help with this dispute. So he came, being related to both sides, and gave such a rousing and inspiring Dhamma talk that many more men went and became <laughs> monks. So now you have what's called 500 women. 500 is the number that's used in the in the text to mean many. So 500 women together with Pajapati Gautami were kind of sitting around going, now what do we do? But they were really very devoted and so they got together and said, "Why?" Well, Can't we also join the homeless life? You know, we really want to come to freedom. Now, this is where who Pajapati was really comes into play, because it's her qualities of real courageous devotion and also persistence, I think, and steadfastness, as well as humility, that got the bhikkhuni sangha going because when they first went to ask the Buddha if they could be ordained with pajapati at their head, what the Buddha says, I'll quote the translation, they, she asked three times, which is the classical um, technique, the first time you get a no, the second time you get a no, and you're supposed to get a yes the third time. But she didn't get a yes the third time. The third time the Buddha still said no. He said, enough, don't set your heart on women being allowed to do this. No explanation, you know, just don't. And I, I won't go into speculation, just that within the context, no, I don't mean that. I really don't mean that. It's, it's hard to look at something not through our cultural bias, but at, the, at that time, Even though within the Sangha, within the Buddha's Sangha, both nuns, when they came to be, and also monks, he was quite radical in that there was no sense of caste division, no sense of, you know, if a king came to become a a monk, he was considered better than a beggar who became a monk. Nothing of that. He wiped it away. But still, there's a way um, that the Buddha didn't really go around trying to completely uproot the outer society. A lot of his important lay followers were, you know, kings and wealthy people. And while he preached the precepts and generosity, he really wasn't, um, at least from what we read, preaching um, radical politics or economics. So, anyway, he wouldn't do it. And see, an- another person, a woman less devoted, a woman less awakened and, and clear in the fact that the ordained life would be of a worthwhile thing for her, might have given up. I mean, really, it's the Buddha who said no, you know, not his second second guy. But she didn't. The Buddha left with his retinue, as was his wont and wandered some, some miles, 150 miles or so away. And she, with the women, followed him. She shaved her head, put on orange robes, and barefoot, they followed him like a hundred miles or whatever, and came to the hall where he was staying and just stood outside crying. <laughs> Why is that funny? <laughs> At this point, Ananda, you remember Ananda, the Buddha's very devoted, kind hearted, compassionate attendant, stepped in. And he saw her there asked why she was there and what was the problem, and she said, you know, the Buddha will not permit us, we women, to enter the homeless life. So Ananda went to the Buddha, and he uh, said, you know, Pajapati's standing outside with swollen feet covered with dust. It would be good if you would allow women to enter the homeless life. And he said the same thing to Ananda, three times, you know, don't set your heart on allowing women to do this enough. But Ananda also didn't give up. He's very persistent in the service of compassion. So it's said that he, he thought about it and thought, okay, let me try asking another way. And he says, are women able, Lord, when they have entered into homelessness to realize the fruits of awakening, the four stages of enlightenment? The Buddha says, of course, no question. It's nothing to do with that. And he says, well then, Ananda says, if women are able to realize perfection, and since Pajapati did so much for you, she was your aunt, your nurse, your foster mother, when your mother died, she even suckled you at her own breast, it would be good if you allowed women to enter into the homeless life. So then the Buddha said, all right, no, I give up, you can you can enter. He did make eight special rules for women, and all through um, the history of the Bhikkhuni order, because the rules of both orders were made up as they went along, you know, he didn't sit down and think, 227 rules for monks have arisen in my mind, and here they are. But each time something would go wrong, they'd make a new rule. And so the women ended up with more rules, sort of out of protection in that society. And he started by making more special rules for women that they had to agree to, which she did. And I'm not going to go into them just because it takes too much time. Um, But she did agree to them, and so the Bhikkhuni Sangha was born. And what's wonderful out of this Bhikkhuni Sangha is that within it, sure, they all... Look to the Buddha as their teacher and listen to the Buddha's teachings. But within the Bhikkhuni Sangha, just as many really inspiring and courageous and great women teachers arose as within the men's Sangha. And in these poems, there's many poems uh, just referring to how another nun helped to inspire awakening in the heart of the nun who's writing the poem. And so, in a way, Um, Within the ordained sangha, the, the women really were inspirations and sisters and supports for one another. Really a very rich and alive sangha. And it's, to me, very inspiring to get in touch with that by reading about these women. And they all were all different. You know, Pajrapati was a great leader and teacher there were several other women very well known as great teachers and with different qualities. Other women who preferred the quiet life of a recluse, just living in nature in the forest, as did many of the monks. You know, some who had enormous struggle in their years and years of practice, some who got awakened right away, you know, and cruised. It's it's different for everyone, but the sangha of Women was very rich and very deep in understanding. So I want to read you um, Pajapati's poem. And this particular translation is by Andy Olensky, who's the director of the study center down the road. She says, Buddha, hero, praise be to you, you foremost among all beings, you who have released me from pain and so many other folk. Two. All suffering has been understood. The source of craving has withered. Cessation has been touched by me on the noble eightfold path. I've been mother and son before, and father, brother, grandmother, too. Not understanding what was real, I flowed on without finding peace. Yet now I've seen the Blessed One. This is my last compounded birth. The onflowing of birth has expired. There's no more re-becoming now. See the gathering of followers putting forth effort, self-controlled, always with strong resolution. This is how to honor the Buddhas. Just that sense of how courageous practice is how we honor the Buddhas. but that That's really what it's about. It's said that Mahapajapati died when she was 120 years old. And just as you know, there's a lot of mythology around the birth and death of the Buddha. So also around Mahapajapati. It's said that at her death and again at her cremation, all kinds of miracles occurred in the earth and in the heavens. So I like that because it just shows that in the mythology there's a real honoring of her as a, a very important woman in the beginning and the carrying out of the teachings. So then I want to talk about first some of the other women who became very important teachers to the other nuns and also to laymen. And then just some of the range, because it's so wonderful, the range of lives that led these women to come into the homeless life, and then the range of experience they went through after. It's just like here on the retreat, you know, it wasn't a picnic. Women from all classes, from sisters of kings, consorts to kings, to really poor beggar women, to poor prostitutes, to really well-to-do prostitutes, to slaves, um, to women who are actually insane at the time that they met the Buddha. Just the whole range. So the first one, her name is Kama. She came to be known as the nun with the deepest insight. And her story is... Um, It's fun. It's kind of one of the easiest stories. She was uh, incredibly beautiful. And because of her great beauty, she was one of the main, the chief consort, It said, of King Bimbasara. Now, a consort isn't a wife. He also had a couple of wives and a lot of other consorts, but she was the chief consort. And that, in that time, gave her a lot of status. And she lived with a life of great ease and comfort, and she was very uh, conceited about how beautiful she was. And she really liked her life of pleasure. So it's not that she was going around looking for some teaching of renunciation. She didn't really want to know about it. But King Bimbisara was one of the, he was a follower of the Buddha, So, the Buddha often came to his grounds of his palace to preach, but Kema would never go hear him because she had heard that he spoke about the dangers of sense pleasures, you know, and the need for renunciation. She thought, I don't want to hear that. I like that because uh, I can relate, you know. uh, The very thing that's going to free us, we think, that's going to take away my pleasure. We don't want to know about it. So, she was like that. But the king tricked her because he knew how much she liked beauty and the hermitage, the Veluvana hermitage where the Buddha would come and teach was very beautiful. So he had court poets compose poems about the great natural beauty of this hermitage and so finally came Kema said, well, I have to go and see this. So she did. And of course it was beautiful and of course, you know, she couldn't avoid... Seeing the Buddha, so when she came within his presence, he, which is one of his magical tricks, and this trick shows up a few other in a few other stories, um, as she came close to him with his magical powers, he created an image of a goddess, like so much more beautiful than Kama, that she was fascinated. You know, wow, she's incredibly beautiful. And then he had this image slowly grow old and decay and move from beauty, you know, to old and wrinkled skin and rotting teeth and um, gradually, totally fall apart. And she got it. (laughs) It really went in. Oh, yeah, it's the same for me. And so then she was so open at that moment, it struck her so deeply that, as is so often the case, the Buddha only had to say a few things. He talked some more about how people devoted to physical beauty are bound, they suffer in this world, and those who can let go of that attachment are free. And it said that this penetrated so deeply that this is, came as a rare example of a lay person who was fully enlightened at that moment, all four stages at once, just from hearing that. So, of course, she went to King Bimbisara and said, I want out, I want to become a nun, and he gave permission, and she was considered, as I said, the the nun uh, with the deepest insight. It's extremely rare that someone is completely awakened as a lay person, just in one moment. Her story, her poem, I'm sure you've heard, if you haven't actually read, how a lot of either the poems of the monks or some of the teachings about uh, sense pleasures or as a way of counteracting lust, there's lots of um, talk about the repulsiveness of the body or the dangers, it's often seen as the dangers of women, right? Because they're going to um, get in the way of the monk's chastity and purity of purpose. And a lot of times in reading this, I know many women who feel rather rather offended. And I think it's important to realize that that wasn't something just male to female, but that many of the nuns poems have the same imagery. And the same sense of looking at the almost repulsive nature of sense pleasures and the decaying aspects of the body. It's not just that, you know, the men see it and the women are all out there being dangerous to the men. Although being in some monastic places in Thailand, it might seem like they think that. (laughs) There's one, (laughs) I shouldn't say this. (laughs) (laughs) At which is actually very eclectic for a Theravadan monastery in Thailand, they have one big building called a the spiritual theater with all kinds of poems and pictures and stuff from the Zen ox-herding pictures, which if you're familiar with Theravada Buddhism in Thailand, to find the Zen ox-herding pictures in a monastery is really quite amazing. But what I really remember was this one really big drawing of a woman with chains coming out with hooks on the end, you know, like it's going to hook in hook in the monks. I'm saying that because it's just the same from the women's side. And I think that's real interesting. So anyway, Kama's poem. Pleasures of the senses are swords and stakes. The elements of mind and body are a chopping block for them. What you call delight is not delight for me. Everywhere, the love of pleasure is destroyed. The great dark is torn apart. And death, you too, are destroyed. For myself, I honor the enlightened one. And best of all, and practicing his teaching, I'm completely freed from suffering. They use this phrase often, the great dark is torn apart just a, as a kind of experience of awakening at that moment. But I love it because it's so vivid. The great dark is torn apart. There's a nice story after Kema became a nun where um, one of the other great kings, King Pasanadi, who was actually a much more devout follower of the Buddha than Bimbisara, came to a town looking for a senior monk to instruct him And none could be found, but they said, here is the bhikkhuni kema. And at that time for a king to go and sit at the feet of a woman and take teachings would seem quite outside of the structure of society. But he didn't even think about it. He went right there, bowed to her and received teachings from her with which he was very pleased and happy. Just to sign that within the process of awakening, has nothing to do with gender or age or class or anything. And that's the radical aspect, I think, of the Buddha's teaching and of the lives of the women and men who lived with him. Okay, now this story is very different. Padachara who was also one of the greatest of the teachers of the nuns, in fact, in all the poems of the nuns, she's referred to more than any other woman as helping to awaken the hearts of different ones of the nuns. She came to be a nun through enormous, enormous suffering. In fact, the last time I was telling the story on a retreat, some friends told me later it was, it's one of these stories that goes on and on and on till the point where they said they were almost ready to start laughing. It's like you can't believe one more thing's going to happen. But I'll try to shorten it, but really give you the story. Born to a wealthy banker's family in the town of Savati, and at that time all marriages were arranged, but she fell in love with a servant, which her parents would never let her marry, so they ran away to a distant village, got married were happy. Uh, When she began to have her first child, the um, custom at the time was to go back to your family to have your child, but understandably her husband didn't really want to go, procrastinated. They started out so late that she had the baby while they were still on the road, so then they went home, back to their distant village. When she was about to have her second child, the same thing, you know, husband didn't want to go, and she finally started without him. He caught up with her on the road, and she began to go into labor, again, not all the way home. So he was with her, but just as she began to go into labor, a huge, violent storm started. Thunderstorm, pouring rain, so the husband went off to collect some branches and brush to build a shelter for her while she was having this baby. Now, while he's off, he's bitten by a poisonous snake, and he dies. She doesn't know where he is. She thinks he's deserted her, has the baby in this terrible storm, um, and then as the storm's over the next day, has no idea where he is, but what can she do? Gathers up her first child, a couple years old, the baby, says, well, I might as well keep going towards my parents' house. Stumbles across her husband, her dead husband, understandably she's, crazed, but, well, what can I do? She keeps going. Comes to a river that's hugely swollen from this rain. This is where it really gets bad. She can't, it's so swollen, she can't cross it holding on to both children. So she leaves the older child on one bank, crosses over and puts the baby on the other bank, starts crossing back, and a a big uh, hawk swoops down and takes the baby while she's in the middle of the river. She starts screaming. The other child thinks she's calling him. He starts into the river, but she can't get to him, and he's swept away and dies. So she keeps on going towards Savati, gets to the edge of town, says to the first person she sees, and she's pretty crazed by this time, asks about her family, and the man says, ask me anything else, but don't ask me that. And she said, but that's all I want to know. And the storm had made, uh, brought down their house and it caught on fire and both her parents and her brother were dead. So that, at that moment, she went insane, just literally crazed with grief, tore off all her clothes, began walking in circles and babbling and people didn't want her around, threw stuff at her, drove her out of town. And she was, for some time, like that, just walking around crazed. At some point, and it's not clear how long, if it's days or weeks or years, she comes to the Jetta Grove, one of the places the Buddha stayed a lot. But as she began to come close to him, he was preaching because she was so, you know, she looked insane, she didn't make sense, she didn't have clothes on, so his disciples tried to protect him, tried to drive her away. But he, of course, sensed what was happening and made them stop and said and said sister recover your presence of mind and immediately she did and came and sat in front of him and a, a nice man gave her some a cloak to wear and she told him her story and said please you know lord help me and what the buddha said is so powerful It's really the power of speaking truth to suffering. You know, how he was just so straight, not like, oh, you know, it's okay. But he said, don't think you've come to someone who can help that, you know. In your many lives, you have shed more tears for the dead than all the water in the four oceans. It's powerful. And I think, you know, when someone comes to me with a story to just be able to be that clear To be that direct, yeah. And you think this is bad all your other lives. This is how it is. And that, of course, really went in for her. And he kept talking about how when we die, no one else can help us, just as we can't help our relatives who die, and everyone is going to die. And that really opened her up to be able to begin to just accept the truth, and she became a nun. It's not one of these immediately she was awakened, but it opened her to be able to use her immense, unbelievable suffering to first awaken herself, which she did, and there's a lovely poem of her awakening, but then you can imagine she would become such a vast reservoir of compassion and support an inspiration for the many, many other women who joined the um, Sangha. There are many women who joined out of grief that their husbands or their children or their families had died. And just having been through that, she became, as I said, the really the greatest teacher of the women nuns and the one most often referred to by the others. What's nice about her story... I mean, her um, poem is it describes the moment when her heart awakened. And it's clear it's not just at the beginning of the time that she became a nun, because it begins with a sort of a lament about what am I doing wrong that maybe you can relate to. She says, I've done everything right, I've followed the rule of my teacher, I'm not lazy or proud. Why haven't I found peace? Hmm? <laughs> then she says, bathing my feet, I watched the bathwater spill down the slope. I concentrated my mind, the way you train a good horse. Then I took a lamp and went into my cell. I checked the bed and sat down on it. I took a needle and pushed the wick of the lamp down. When the lamp went out, my mind was freed. Just that simple moment. And if you notice, it's also the sense of discouragement, picking yourself up and concentrating your mind again. You just do it. And then after a period of concentration, real awareness, but sort of that relaxation of just being in the moment, the simple moment of patting your bed And putting down the wick of your lamp, the mind was freed. Now we're always telling you it's not just about the sitting and the walking; it's really just about that presence. So that's patichara. I'll just read you one poem by one of the women who mentions her Chanda, and one of these, one of the women in deep grief, whose whole family—husband, children, parents all died at once of an epidemic. And she having no other family to take care of her, she didn't go crazy, but she had to become a beggar to survive. It was such a family-oriented culture. And so she was a beggar for years. This is her poem. I was in a bad way, a widow, no children, no friends, no relations, to give me food and clothes. I was a beggar with a bowl and stick and wandered house to house in the heat and cold for seven years. I met a nun who had food and drink and I went up to her and said, take me into the homeless life. She was Patacara. Out of pity, she guided me in leaving home encouraged me and urged me to the highest goal. I took her advice. It wasn't wasted. There are no obsessions in my mind. But you notice, the first thing is, I met a nun who had food and drink. It's not like she was starving and Patichara said, sit down, let me teach you the high Dharma. You know, she fed her. We need to be taken care of. And then she urged her to the highest goal. The last uh, of the really great teachers I want to mention, again, a different story. Her name was Dama Dina. And she was supposed to be, everyone seems to have a label. I don't know if that's just the way they could remember to, to write down later who was who, but she was considered the foremost in preaching, I guess the best in answering questions in an oratory. And she was a woman, uh, she was married to an important man in Rajagaha, Visakha, and they had a very happy marriage, which was lucky at that time since the marriages were arranged. But one day her husband went out and he, he heard uh, the Buddha teaching and he was awakened to some degree. And when he came home, he was so absorbed in what he had heard and in his new perspective on life that instead of greeting Damadina, sitting down, eating together, as they usually did, he just ignored her and kept going. And she, of course, what did I do wrong? Oh, my Lord, are you angry at me? How can I make you happy? You know, the whole thing. And uh, finally, you know, he said, "Okay, let's talk. You know, he told her about the Buddha, that about his realization, and that he really wanted to renounce the world and become a monk. And he said, I'll give you all my wealth. You can stay here. You can go back to your parents. Here's all my money. What do you want to do? And she thought it over and said, well, I'll renounce too. You know, if that's good enough for you, I will also do it. So he said, fine. And he gave her a big send-off, you know, sent her to the Bhikkhuni order, you know, carried in on a litter and everything. So she became a a monk, she practiced intensively, of course awakened after some time. And then at some time after her awakening, she found herself back in Rajagaha, where she had lived with her husband, and turned out he'd changed his mind. He hadn't uh, actually become a monk after all. But now she was in Arhat, completely awakened now, she didn't care. And he'd done her a big favor. And, 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 and really, she doesn't have a poem so much, but she has actually a whole sutra in the middle length sayings where actually her husband, Visakha, is asking the lady Dhammadina all these questions. It's a whole sutta, very subtle and profound question and answer sutta uh, of this nun Dhammadina. And what's really special, besides, I just read it tonight, it's really very subtle stuff. And at the end, he keeps on asking and asking and asking. And finally she says, enough. You know, you're never going to come to the end of your questions. Go ask the Buddha. So he goes to the Buddha, reports everything Dhamma had said. And the Buddha said, very good. I would have answered exactly as she did. What she says, I would have said. So that's the meaning, and so you should remember it. And there's a special word for that. When the Buddha says what that nun or monk said is exactly the same as I would have said. It's called, you know, word of the Buddha, Buddha Vachana. It's basically saying, you know, their understanding, their wisdom is equal to my own. And so this is the case of his saying that about the, the nun Dhamma dina. Again, another example that once there's awakening, gender, caste, class, has nothing to do with anything. That the truth can exist and does exist in all of us. So those are some that became great teachers. There's a couple others whose story I really like from very different levels of society. They didn't particularly become great teachers uh, after they entered the the Kuni order, but their stories are great. One is a woman, Punika, who was a slave woman, and she was a slave in the household of Anathapindika. He was the—you read—you read his name a lot. Anathapindika. He was the main lay supporter of the Buddha. A lot of these sutras take place somewhere called the Jetta Grove, and Anathapindika actually gave the Jetta Grove to the Buddha's Sangha. And yet he had slaves. You know, I can't put it together. It's a different culture. But anyway. Punika was a slave woman, but even when she was a slave, she heard the Buddha teach, and and she became awake in the first stage of enlightenment. You know in the Theravada there's four stages. So she heard it and was awakened to the truth. And what I love about this story is the power of truth, that she knew what was true, and was so had so much faith and courage in that that she was willing to speak that truth in a place where a slave woman could have really gotten in big trouble. So her job was to go down to the river every day and draw water, bring it back to the house. And she was down there one morning, and a Brahmin man. Now you know in India they had this whole caste system that you were born into, and there's nothing you could do about. You were born into it. And the Brahmin caste was the highest caste. So a Brahmin man would be the highest caste. I would imagine a slave woman would be the lowest. And this Brahmin man came down to the river um, pursuing a a custom of one of the Hindu customs of that time of washing himself in the river to wash away his past misconduct. And Punika basically just taking her stand, and what she knew was the truth, completely challenged him on it. He said, what are you doing, you know? it's a. will uh, read you the, the poem, because uh, to be so sure of what is true and so unconcerned with what could happen. So, you know, she says, I'm a water carrier. Even in the cold, I've always gone down to the water. Frightened of punishment, or the angry words of high-class women. And so it's a dialogue poem. She says, so what are you afraid of, Brahman, that makes you go down to the water? Your limbs are shaking with bitter cold. And he says, you know what I'm doing, I'm washing away my bad deeds. And she says, whoever told you, you are freed from evil by washing, the blind leading the blind. In that case, all frogs and turtles would go to heaven. (laughs) And she said, thieves, executioners, other wrongdoers would be freed from their bad karma by washing in the water. If these streams carried away all your old evil, they would carry away your virtue too. You'd be separated from both. And she says, just don't do that thing, the fear of which brings you down here to wash. See how how powerful it is just to speak the truth. And of course, he's immediately... He immediately realizes that she's right. He immediately sees into the truth and says, you're wrong, I'm wrong, you've you've brought me back to the right right road. Here, let me give you the robe I bathed in, you know, as a gesture of my gratitude. And she says, I don't, keep your robe, I don't want it. (laughs) But she gives him a little lecture on sila. You know, if you're afraid of pain, if you don't like it, then don't do anything evil. Either openly or in secret. You no, know? if you're afraid of pain, if you don't like it, then take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Train in the precepts. This is good. Can you imagine? You know, a slave woman saying this to a Brahmin man, and of course he completely takes refuge and goes to the Buddha, and then uh, Anattapindaka gave her her freedom. Um, adopted her as a daughter, and she, you know, renounced and, and went and joined the Bhikkhuni Order. But I just, I just love that story because the power of truth transcends all differences, and it just took a lot of guts on her part. Another very different story is that of Ambapali. Ambapali was the chief courtesan, not of a particular person, but of the whole town of Vesali. She was born really beautiful, and all the princes were fighting over her, so they decided in order not to have these fights, they would just make her the chief courtesan of the town. And that means basically the head prostitute, you know, so any man could pay her. So she was really rich and had a very high status, you know, and really beautiful, and and she had a really good life. And she had a son by King Bimbisara. We've met him before. So she had a son by King Bimbisara, who went off and became a monk. And he would come back and talk to his mother, Ambapali, about, you know, the Buddha's teachings. So she didn't actually meet the Buddha until she was pretty old. But when she did the first time she was going out in her carriage to the grove where the Buddha was teaching he knew she was coming and he had to give all his monks a warning you know to keep their senses guarded because she was so stunningly beautiful and seductive but she was really going just to hear the Buddha and she got you know very excited invited him and all the monks to come for lunch the next day and You know, he came again, he gave him a little lecture, just eat your lunch and watch what you're doing. But nothing, (laughs) nothing happened. And it's said that later, later in her life even, after hearing her son preach, then she um, renounced the world. And what's interesting is that it's, it's said in the commentaries that the thing that actually brought her to awakening, the thing she studied impermanence, using her own aging body as the subject of watching how her beautiful body that had been her whole life was breaking down and just seeing this in herself, she came to complete awakening. And I wanted to read some of her poem because I find her poem, I find it amusing as a real sense of humor about it remembering that this was her avenue watching her body decay. Something that's available to all of us. (laughs) My hair was black and curly, the color of black bees. Now that I am old, it is like the hemp of trees. This is the teaching of one who speaks truth. Fragrant as a scented oak, I wore flowers in my hair. Now because of old age, it smells like dog's hair. <laughs> this is the teaching of one who speaks truth. <laughs> My eyes flashed like jewels, long and black. Now they don't make anyone look back. This is the teaching of one who speaks truth. And she goes on and on through every part of her body. My hands were beautiful. Set off by rings, gold as the sun. Now because of old age, they're like radishes or onions. This is the teaching of one who speaks truth. (laughs) My feet were beautiful, delicate, as if filled with cotton. Now because of old age, they are cracked and rotten. This is the teaching of one who speaks truth. And she ends with, this is how my body was. Now it is dilapidated a place of pain, an old house with the plaster falling off. If you really let that in, an old house with the plaster falling off, really coming from someone who spent her whole life engrossed in the pleasures of the body and how beautiful she was, that she can look at that not with discouragement, or devastation, but that that is the seed for awakening. Really in so many of these stories, the suffering is the seed of awakening, just what we keep saying all the time. And what I know a lot of you have discovered in your practice, it's the same now as it was then. You know, when you're feeling really sick, instead of it being something wrong, it becomes the avenue for awakening. We fall apart, more and more of us in chairs, you know. More and more of us going through all kinds of physical stuff. It's not a mistake. You know, sooner or later, the plaster's gonna fall off of all of us. Can we use it to awaken? (laughs) Okay, speaking of suffering. There's a whole series of poems, I'll just read a couple, about women who, after they became nuns, it was still really tough. And to me, that's not discouraging. That's actually supportive because, you know, so often you hear like Kema, you know, she heard three lines, became completely enlightened. Or we we read the story about the Buddha gave a talk and 500 people became completely enlightened, you know, and we think, (laughs) five years, ten years, you know, what am I doing wrong? And so there's quite a few uh, women with poems that show they've had the same frustrations and struggles after they became nuns and were really seriously practicing. So, just so we feel some solidarity. The first one is, um, her name is Utama. She was one of Patichera. Remember, she's the one with all the suffering. One of her disciples. But I like this poem because it's describing a moment in practice. Of this utter frustration. Four or five times I left my cell. I had no peace of mind, no control over my mind. can you get the feeling <laughs> in and out of your room, in and out, the mind going wild. I went to a nun I thought I could trust. She taught me the Dharma, the elements of body and mind, the nature of perception, earth, water, fire, and wind. I heard what she said and sat cross-legged, seven days full of joy. When on the eighth I stretched my feet out, the great dark was torn apart. And this is Vadesi. She was actually the nurse of Mahapajapati Gotami, the founder of the bhikkhuni order. And so she entered the order with... Mahapajapati, but she didn't get enlightened right away. Had a long, hard struggle. It was 25 years since I left home, and I hadn't had a moment's peace. So you think three months is long, you can just stop whining. Uneasy at heart, steeped in longing for pleasure, I held out my arms and cried out as I entered the monastery. I and mean, you can really relate. It's not like some pure thing. We're just wanting pleasure for 25 years. I went up to a nun I thought I could trust. And they say, the commentary is that she's talking about Dhamma Dina here. And it's this, then it's the same thing. She taught me the Dharma, the elements of body and mind, the nature of perception, earth, water, fire, and wind. I heard her words and sat down beside her. I have great magic powers now and have annihilated all the obsessions of the mind. The Buddha's teaching has been done. I love that when they're really free, the Buddha's <clears throat> teaching has been done. But it's hard work. One other, Mita Kali, Who joined when she heard the Buddha preach the uh, Satipatthana Sutta, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness? And that was so inspiring that she became a nun. But it's said that she was a very difficult person, that uh, she was very angry, very self centered, very difficult to get along with. And so, coming into the bhikkhuni order, you know, she had a hard time at first. But gradually, through very sincere practice, these Qualities eased. But again, here's her poem. Although I left home for no home and wandered full of faith, I was still greedy for possessions and praise. I lost my way, my passions used me, and I forgot the real point of my wandering life. Then as I sat in my little cell, there was only terror. This is another one of those moments. I thought, this is the wrong way. A fever of longing controls me. Life is short. Age and sickness gnaw away. I have no time for carelessness before this body breaks. And as I watched the elements of mind and body rise and fall away, I saw them as they really are. I stood up. My mind was completely free. The Buddha's teaching has been done. Again, that movement from feeling totally lost, you know, and longing for pleasure and terror, and then the willingness, okay, come back and meet the moment. Just see what's happening, you know. She got that sense of, Um, determination, I have no time for carelessness, and just started watching the elements of mind and body rise and fall away. It just takes that moment of coming back again, no matter how hard it gets. There's a lot of others along that line. But there's also some poems of women who clearly their life was such suffering beforehand that joining the nunhood, renouncing was actually a movement into freedom. I just want to read you a couple of these. It's the difficulty of living in an arranged marriage with a difficult husband, where the wife is is really like a slave or a servant, has no freedom whatsoever. And in fact, women were not allowed to become nuns unless their husband gave them permission. You know, so, so if there's one poem from a woman known only as Sumangala's mother. We don't even have her name. Sumangala was another monk. But her poem, this is her poem. Free, I am free. How glad I am to be free from my pestle. My cooking pot seems worthless to me. And I can't even bear to look at his sun umbrella. My husband disgusts me. So I destroy greed and hate with a sizzle. And I'm the same woman who goes to the foot of a tree and says to herself, Ah, happiness. (laughs) And meditates with happiness. So renunciation can be a great joy. Here's another one from a woman named Mutta who was in a very unhappy marriage and her husband didn't treat her well. Um, But she finally convinced him to let her become a nun. Again, she says, free, I am free. Free by means of the three crooked things, mortar, pestle, and my crooked husband. Then I mean, she doesn't say free from them, free by them. In other words, those again were the avenue, seeing that suffering were the avenue for deliverance. I'm free from birth and death and all that dragged me back. And one more story of an unhappy housewife whose unhappiness led her into freedom. Another woman, an anonymous wife, we don't have her name. But her husband would not, also would not let her become a nun. So she continued to live out her obligations as a Brahmin wife, cooking and taking care of her husband. And one day she was in the kitchen cooking curry and the whole pot caught on fire and all the vegetables burned up. And she was so tuned in that this little mishap brought her to the third stage of enlightenment. Impermanence was just so clear. So, next time you break a glass, you know. <laughs> so, again, it's another example of a lay person, a lay woman, just being so present and open that a little incident, you know, really awakened her. And at that, then she went to her husband and said, I just can't do this anymore, you know, and he let her go be a nun. And just one other group I want to mention, and that is really old women. So many times people will say, I mean, over the years I've heard it a lot, where people of all ages say, I wish I could have started practice earlier. Imagine if I knew about this 20 years ago or 30 years ago or 40 years ago. But there's a whole lot of women who, like like these wives, could not become nuns. Either until their husbands died, or there's another woman who was taking care of her grandmother, who she really loved, or her mother, and who couldn't or wouldn't um, ordain until they were free from their obligations. And some women who were really quite elderly by the time they became nuns. It was okay. Sometimes it's just the, again, using the feebleness of the body was at sometimes the point of awakening. There's one woman who, let me see if I can find it, she actually awakened because she fell down, because she was so weak, and that's the thing that woke her up. Her name was Dhamma. I wandered for alms. I leaned on a stick. My whole body was weak and trembled. Suddenly I fell down and could see clearly the misery of this body. My heart was freed. Do we think of those two lines together? I could see clearly the misery of this body. My heart was freed. I think that's amazing. Another woman, her name is a mouthful, Bahu Pitaka, had seven sons and seven daughters. wealthy. And she said, well, I'll give you children all the money now, and then you can just, you know, sort of take care of me. And they said, great, Ma, we'll take the money. And then they were passing her from family to family, and it's sort of like a modern story. None of them wanted her. They started not treating her well. They started being sarcastic. She really felt unwanted, and finally said, who needs this? I'm going to go become a nun. And this woman, quite elderly, became renowned as the nun most known for her courageous effort. Of all the nuns, not just the old nuns, of all the nuns, she was the most known for her courageous effort. She'd serve the nuns all day and then she'd practice all night. And so again she she became awakened. To me that's also inspiring. So I'll just end with one story, not even a story, just a poem that I like very much, from a woman named Dantika. It's another one of those moments. As I left my daytime resting place on Vulture Peak, I saw an elephant come up on the riverbank after its bath. A man took a hook and said to the elephant, Give me your foot. The elephant stretched out its foot, the man mounted. Seeing what was wild before, gone tame under human hands, I went into the forest and concentrated my mind." So, let's sit quietly in the forest, concentrate our minds. I have found what is vast and empty, the unborn. It is what I've longed for. I am a true daughter of the Buddha, always finding joy in peace.